Matthew chapter 5. If you turn in the Bibles that you brought to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. A family went on vacation and a thief was waiting for them to leave. And once they left, he picked the lock at night, walked into the house, locked the door behind him. And as he was going in the darkness through the hallways, he heard a voice. The voice said, Jesus sees you and so do I. Well, this startled him. Turned on his flashlight and pointed it in the direction of the voice. Didn't hear anything, turned it off, kept going through the house, heard it again. Jesus sees you and so do I. Then he made his way into the kitchen where he thought the voice was coming from, turned on the flashlight, and there on the countertop was a parrot in a cage. And as the flashlight was on the parrot, he heard the voice once again. This time he saw it was the parrot saying it. And the parrot, sure enough, said, Jesus sees you and so do I. Well, he sighed, you know, like, great, no big deal. It's just a dumb parrot in a cage. He turns on the light, and there on the floor, next to the counter where the parrot cage is, is a Doberman Pinscher. (laughs) Crouched, teeth glistening, gnarling, and then the parrot says, Attack, Jesus, attack. (laughs) Now that brings up a question. And here it is. Believe it or not, it does bring up a question. Which Jesus do you follow? You say, wait a minute. Which Jesus? Isn't there only one? Are there more than one? Oh, yes, there are. You see, Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 says, If someone comes to you and preaches to you another Jesus other than the one we have preached, you might put up with it. There are different ideas that people have constructed in their minds as to who Jesus is. For instance, some people have the um, sentimental, anything-goes Jesus. He would be the one who would include everyone and everything. He would kiss little babies, pat them on the head. Anything goes, no matter what you believe. Other people have the uh, good man, high example, but certainly not God Jesus. They see Jesus as the finest human example who ever walked the face of the earth, but he's certainly not God in human flesh. And then there are those people who have the attack Jesus. That's the one they believe in. They think that Jesus is always mad at people, always angry, brow is furrowed. He's having a bad Messiah day every day. It's a different Jesus. Virtually every cult in America and every religious system on earth has some idea of who Jesus Christ is. So I ask the question, which Jesus do you follow? Because that's part and parcel of another question. And the question is this. What do you think about the Bible? Personally, what do you think about the Bible? And the reason it's all part of the same question is because many people say they follow Jesus and yet they don't hold the same view about the Bible that the Jesus they say they follow has. For instance, some people look at this book and they say, well, I like the Bible. It's, it's impressive literature. In fact, I even took a course one time in college, the Bible as literature. And it is an inspirational book. But what they mean by inspirational book is, you know, Shakespeare was inspirational, so is the Bible. 
Or people will say, well, the Bible's a good thing to have. After all, we all are Americans, and that's part of our culture historically. Uh, it's a good thing to write names in, uh, births in, deaths in. It's a great thing to press flowers with. Everybody should have one. If that is your view of the Bible, you're not truly following Jesus of Nazareth, who referred to the Bible, in this case, the Old Testament, 64 times, it's recorded in the Gospels, and always as the inerrant, infallible Word of God, the Scriptures. If we are wrong on this point, it's crucial. Because if Jesus is wrong about the Bible, how can you trust him about anything else he said? Find out what a person thinks about the Bible. You'll find out what that person really thinks about Jesus and what Jesus it is that they follow. I heard about a woman who wanted to impress her pastor. He came over to visit the family, and as soon as he came to the door, she opened the door and said in a loud voice, to her daughter, honey, bring mama the book she loves so much. And the little girl came back with a Sears catalog. <laughs> she knew what mom was into. So what did Jesus think about the Bible? Well, let's look at verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus continues in the Sermon on the Mount, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven." The first thing Jesus thought about the Bible is that it has authority. It has authority. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets, he says. I didn't come to destroy, but I came to fulfill. Now, Jesus was, at this point in his ministry, in the spotlight. He was getting more famous. He had already been in Jerusalem, and he had upset the apple cart, spiritually speaking, there. He's now in the Galilee region. People are listening to him and they're wondering, who is this guy? What is he into? And what does he think about our scriptures, the Old Testament? Is he trying to subvert them? Is he trying to destroy them? Is he trying to override them? Just exactly what does he think? And you'll notice that Jesus refers to, in verse 17, the law and the prophets. Notice it's not a law and several prophets. The law and the prophets, he's referring to, of course, the Old Testament documents. Um, when the Jew uses the term the law, he refers to one of three things. The law meaning the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. Uh, the law, number two, which are the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, that's Genesis through Deuteronomy. That's usually referred to as the Torah, the law. But sometimes it refers to all of the Old Testament scriptures, which they would call the Tanakh. So oftentimes when you read in the New Testament the Law and the Prophets or the Law and the Writings and the Prophets, those are the subdivisions that denote all of the Old Testament. But here's the point. 
Jesus refers to the law as being from God. It's the law of God. Exodus 20 begins, which is the giving of the law. And God spoke all of these words saying. And then he refers here to the prophets. And there were many prophets in the Old Testament, not just Israeli prophets. There were Mesopotamian prophets, Akkadian prophets. But the prophets refers to the group of guys who walked around saying, Thus saith the Lord. You know, you never read an Old Testament prophet coming up to a group of people and saying, Now, as weird as this might sound, I know it might sound ridiculous, but I sort of feel like the Lord has laid this on my heart. There was no doubt. It was pure certainty. Thus says the Lord. The Word of God. When Sir Walter Scott, the poet, was dying, he said to one of his assistants, Bring me the book. And the guy said, Well, Sir Scott, you have so many books. Which one are you referring to? He said, Bring me the book, the Bible. The only book for a dying man. And it's not only the only book for a dying man, it's the only book for a living man or a living woman. It's the book. And Jesus here, by his statements, is upholding everything God ever said in the law and the prophets, saying, this is the book. This is God's voice. Whenever Jesus referred to the Bible, it was always as very authoritative He said in Matthew chapter 4 to Satan who was tempting him, It is written. And then in John chapter 10, he said, To whom the word of God came, and the scriptures cannot be broken. And then again, five times Jesus said to the leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, words like, Have you not read what is written in your law? Or don't you know what David said? Or what David wrote. Now, that's important because if you don't share the same view of the scripture that Jesus shared, it'll be pretty obvious in your life. I meet people all the time who are Christians, but they're very unstable, and it all comes down to how they really view this book. Can you rely upon these promises? Is this or not the word of God? Some people can only be described as having a Dalmatian theology. That that is, the Bible is inspired in spots. You don't know which spots exactly they think it's inspired in, but yeah, I believe the Bible's inspired, at least that part I believe in. I don't know about that other stuff, but... And their lives are very unstable. Tyndale House, which is a publishing company for Christian literature, did a study and reported 90% of Bible readers feel at peace all or most of the time as compared to only 58% who read it less than once a month. They went on to say 92% of frequent Bible readers report knowing a clear purpose and meaning for their life as compared to 69% of infrequent Bible readers. You know, there's something about living with a sense of authority that lets you go through life Not saying, oh, I don't know, but going, ah, I can rely upon what he said. There's a village in Europe. I think it was a German village because they had the the clock in the center of the town, the glockenspiel. 
And it was the clock that everybody in town knew was authoritative. It set the time for everyone. Until one day, the glass broke. And what happened when the glass broke is people started reaching in and setting the clock according to their own watches. Well, you can see that that would be crazy because somebody would say, well, that can't be right. And he'd set the clock ahead and somebody would come back the next day. I don't think that's right. They'd set it behind. Pretty soon, nobody knew what time it was. There was no more standard authority because people were setting it according to what they felt it was like. According to Jesus, the Bible has authority. Something else, not only the Bible has authority, but according to Jesus, the Bible demonstrates accuracy. Look at verse 18. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, One jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Wow. It doesn't sound like Jesus had this view of the Bible, that it's just a handy little book to have around to press flowers in, or it's fine literature. By that statement, by the way, there's no stronger statement of God's word being God's word down to every letter and every mark. Notice the term jot. That's an anglicized revision. It's a transliteration of the Hebrew word yod. Not one yod, which is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It looks just like a comma or an apostrophe. A tittle is even smaller than a yod. It's a distinguishing mark, a little protrusion off of the end of a letter that would distinguish one letter from another letter. We would say something like the uh, dotting of the I or the crossing of the T. Not one jot, not one tittle will by any means pass from the law. In other words, it's God's word down to every letter, every mark, inerrant, secure. I want you to watch something in in how Jesus handles the scripture. Uh, Turn over to Matthew chapter 22 for a moment. And I'm having to turn to a story where Jesus is having a little confrontation with leadership. These were the scribes, the Pharisees. Actually, this group was the Sadducees. And they were having an argument about uh, the issue of marriage. And the resurrection. Look at verse 23. Matthew 22, verse 23. The same day, the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. Can you imagine living your life without any hope of the resurrection? Maybe that's why they were called sad, you see. (laughs) They came to him and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children... His brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, now get their example. There was with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also and the third even to the seventh. You get the story? Here's a group of guys and one marries a wife and he dies so... He, the second brother, gets the wife, and he dies, and then the third dies. And the, After a while, wouldn't you wonder about this gal? Like, what is she putting in the eggs or in the coffee? But it's a ridiculous example. They all die, but they all married her. So here's the question. 
Last of all, the woman died also, verse 27. Verse 28, therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. And I can just see him kind of pulling their robes up like, we got him. He cannot answer this dilemma. Notice how he answers it. Jesus answered them and said, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Now he explains, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus does. He's talking to a group of people who don't believe in a resurrection. They come up with some lame example that would never happen and then pose the dilemma, okay, in the resurrection, if you believe in one Jesus, whose wife is she going to be? Jesus says, you're mistaken. You don't know your Bibles. And what he does, he takes them back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. That's the burning bush passage. And he exegetes it, showing that the Bible is inspired even down to the very verb forms, which they should have known. These are the guys who read and interpret the Bible. So he says, don't you guys read your Bibles? Don't you know that God said back then, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? Present tense, not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. What's the big deal? Why is that so significant? It's showing that hundreds of years after these patriarchs died, God is still their God because they're still alive. So the verb tense proves the resurrection. I am the God, not I was the God. And so it says in verse 33, when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. What does Jesus think about the Bible? It has authority. It demonstrates accuracy. And they should have known that even down to the verb forms. That's why when we study the Bible, we should study nouns and verbs and adjectives and context and syntax. I know it might sound boring like some English course, but you'd be surprised how God can speak through the use of these things. There was a woman. She was traveling over in Europe, and uh, her husband was back home in the States. She saw a bracelet. She wanted to buy it. So she, this is before cell phones, she wired him a message. She said, found beautiful bracelet, only $75,000. May I buy it? Well, he immediately wired back, no, comma, price too high, exclamation point. Well, the wire operator left out the comma. You say, oh, just a comma. Oh, but that changes the whole meaning, doesn't it? Because instead of no comma, pause, price too high, you leave out the comma and it's no price too high. She bought it. That comma cost him 75,000 bucks. According to Jesus Christ, the Bible is accurate down to the jots and the tittles, the commas and the verb tenses. 
That's why when you read about what Jesus says about the Old Testament, like in Matthew 19, he affirms the creation of the heaven and earth. He affirms the existence of Adam and Eve. In Matthew 24, he affirms the fact that the earth was judged by a flood and it was universal. He spoke about in Luke chapter 11, a great fish literally swallowing Jonah and Jonah being in the belly of the whale three days and three nights. He spoke of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, literally. He spoke of manna falling from heaven, literally. Now we've got to deal with all this. Because is Jesus right about these things? If not, we got bigger problems. Because if Jesus said these things and he was wrong, it means, number one, he was ignorant about them. He just actually really believed those things happened, but they never really did because we know better now scientifically. And if that's true, how can you trust Jesus when he says anything? Or Jesus was wrong when he said that, and he was accommodating the ignorance of his time, which makes him a liar. And you have difficulty following someone who says, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, the founder of Christianity, if indeed he's a hypocrite and a liar. In uh, Indiana, the state parks have some inns, motels. Six inns are in the state parks in Indiana. And uh, in each of these motel rooms, there's a Gideon Bible placed. And how I love the fact that the Gideons have been persistent around the world in placing the Word of God in hotel rooms. The ACLU found out about it, that there are inns in state-run parks. And so the ACLU got together and they pressured the Department of Natural Resources to put warning labels on all the Bibles. And on the Bibles is a warning label with a picture of the Bible and it says this, Warning! Literal belief in this book may endanger your life and health. (laughs) Then it advises that the Bible is a violent, racist, and sexist fable. That's the ACLU. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, says it is authoritative, it is accurate, it is historical. You can trust it. Now, you might be sitting here this morning and go, okay, I hear you, but is there any real demonstration of that? You say Jesus believed that, but how would you demonstrate that it's accurate? Let me give you just a few of them. Number one, there is accurate transmission. Listen carefully. Accurate transmission. In other words, centuries of copying and recopying and distributing the Bible has not marred its message. Finest example is the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the 1940s over in the Dead Sea area of Israel. Up until that point, the oldest manuscripts that we had of the Old Testament came from 900 A.D., Suddenly in our hands we have manuscripts that date back to 200 and some B.C., 1,100 years older than the oldest manuscripts we possessed. That was one of the greatest archaeological finds in the world. What was greater is what they didn't find, mistakes. They started copying and, and, excuse me, comparing these documents that were 1,100 years removed from each other, and they said, they're exactly the same. There are no mistakes. So when anyone comes to you and says, well, you know, zealous monks copied and recopied and inserted and reinserted and changed it over the years, they haven't a clue what they're talking about. 
there is a proof of accurate transmission over the centuries. The New Testament that we read is based on over 5,700 manuscripts. The oldest manuscript that we have dates to about 120 A.D., or roughly 30 years after it was originally penned by, in this case, the Apostle John. It's a copy of the Gospel of John. 5,700 manuscripts, the oldest that we have, 30 years after it was originally written. Compare that to the Gaelic Wars written by Caesar. We have 10 copies of it in existence. The earliest copy that we have of the original is a 1,000 years after it was written. The writings of Plato, we have seven manuscripts in existence. The earliest copy that we have is 1,200 years after it was originally written. The writings of Aristotle, we only have five in existence. The earliest copy dates 1,200, excuse me, 1,400 years after it was originally written. So you compare the transmission of the scripture and some of these other documents and you say, wow, an accurate transmission is provable. Second is reliable history. Not only is the Bible a a book about God and heaven and hell and men, it's a historical book. It speaks about real people, real places, real events. And it's fun to watch what happens when the archaeologist sets his spade to uncovering the accuracy of the Bible. Years ago, scholars, quote, unquote, would read sections of the New Testament like where it mentions the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. And they went, oh, there is no such thing as a pool of Bethesda. We've never uncovered one in all of the archaeology of Jerusalem. It's not there. These guys are wrong. A few years later, they started digging around the Antonia Fortress area of Jerusalem, and guess what they found? The pool of Bethesda with five covered porches and an intermittent spring like the Bible talks about. And I've been to the Pool of Bethesda. And if we ever get to go to Israel together again, I'll show it to you. Or Pontius Pilate. Scholars said, there is no Pontius Pilate. It's mentioned in the Bible his name is, but there has never been in the history of the Roman annals a procurator named Pontius Pilate. And so they scoffed it until they started digging around Caesarea by the sea. And there in Caesarea Philippi, they uncovered this huge stone. You can see it today. It's sitting right out front. It talks about the reign of Tiberius and the procurator of Judea, Pontius Pilate. And every time that happens, the skeptics go, oh, hmm. And they're suddenly silenced on that point. Accurate transmission, reliable history, unified message, unified message. Think of the Bible this way. You have here 66 books written over 1,600 years by more than 40 authors in three languages from three different continents, a variety of different backgrounds and educational strata, all speaking about the most controversial subjects in the world, the existence of God, the origin of man, the problem of evil, the destiny of humankind. What are the odds of all those guys with those backgrounds writing about exactly the same thing and being in agreement? Well, you could do an experiment. Get 10 people from your neighborhood 
Never mind 66 with different languages. Just 10 people from your neighborhood with the same language, the same educational background, and discuss one controversial subject like the meaning of life. You'll have 10 different opinions, at least. Or what if you were to treat a patient based on 25 different medical books from the last 1,600 years? You'd kill them. Because you'd have to take stuff from headhunters, Native Americans, modern medicine, put it all together, it wouldn't agree. You'd create a Frankenstein. And number four, prophecy. Accurate transmission, reliable history, unified message, and fulfilled prophecy. So much of the Bible was written before events actually took place. God predicted 400 years the children of Israel would be in Egypt. God promised the children of Israel would be captive in Babylon 70 years. God even predicted the names of people like Cyrus hundreds of years before they even were born. All of this showing this is the word of God. Now, in hearing that, you might say, well, Skip, if that's true, then why, why is the Bible always under attack? Why aren't the works of Plato, Aristotle, etc., the Gaelic Wars of Caesar, why aren't these documents under attack? Good question. Glad you asked it. Roy Aldridge observes this, Satan does not waste time in ammunition. Professors who are being paid to teach philosophy, English, biology, and mathematics often take time from their class period to undermine the Bible and Christianity. I've had this happen when I was in college. Why are they not doing the same with sacred books of other religions? The answer is that Satan, the original liar, is sympathetic with books that lie. His real enmity is directed against the book of truth because it spells the dynamite for his defeat. People don't reject the Bible because the Bible contradicts itself. People reject the Bible because the Bible contradicts them. And they'll do any smoke and mirrors operation they can to say, well, you know, it's not really reliable. A bunch of zealous people just made stuff up through the centuries. That's easily debunked. And according to Jesus, the Bible has authority. The Bible demonstrates accuracy. Number three, according to Jesus, the Bible will have longevity. Look at what he says in our text. Back in Matthew 5, for assuredly, verse 18, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, or the universe as we know it, the world, pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. God's word will outlast the universe and will outlast the skeptics who mock it. In the year 303 A.D., Diocletian, the Roman emperor, made it illegal for anyone to have a copy of the Bible. Anyone found with a copy of the scriptures was instantly killed. His idea was to eradicate Christianity, he said, from off the face of the earth, from out of the Roman Empire. It didn't work. Years later, taken into more modern Europe in the 1700s, the uh, French unbeliever, the infidel Voltaire, made a prediction publicly. He said, within 100 years, I, by my writings, will overturn Christianity and prove that what the apostles said was wrong. 
Within a hundred years of his death, the Bible societies in Europe used his home to print and distribute Bibles throughout Europe. I love the irony of God. It's like, yeah. In Isaiah chapter 40, we read, The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. And then Jesus comes along and he elevates what he says with the same par as all of the prophets in the law. When he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. I've always loved John Clifford's little quip about the Bible and how it has lasted through the ages. He said, I paused one day beside the blacksmith's door and listened to the anvil ring the evening chime. Looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn from beating years of time. And so I thought, the anvil of God's word for ages skeptics' blows have beat upon, and though the sound of infidels was heard, the anvil is unworn. The hammer's gone. All gone. And every generation, a new voice comes up and a new Newsweek article is written and USA Today puts some little quip in it and people go, oh, see? Or a new book is written and, oh, the Bible is false. And they all just go away. And the Bible outlasts, outlives, and will stand forever. So according to Jesus, the Bible has authority. The Bible demonstrates accuracy. The Bible will have longevity. Number four, the Bible reveals a personality. Look at how in verse 17 Jesus steps into the text itself and he says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now understand that these leaders in Israel were a bit nervous with Jesus' authority that they noticed. And uh, uh, maybe he would say something that would that would get people's minds and eyes and belief off of the Old Testament scriptures as they know it. So he's saying, boys, I didn't come to destroy the Bible. I'm the theme of the Bible. The Bible was written about me. I'm the hero of the book. In uh, one portion of the Gospels, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because in them you think that you have eternal life. But these are they which testify of me. In another section, Jesus said, If you believed in Moses, you'd believe me because Moses wrote about me. See, he constantly places himself as the fulfillment of the scripture. It is estimated that Jesus fulfilled at his first coming some 322 predictions that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be of the tribe of Judah, of the lineage of King David, born of a virgin, etc., etc., etc. And the odds of fulfilling those are astronomical. Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the Mosaic Law. He uh, fulfilled the sacrificial part of the law, that he was the sacrifice for sin. And a lot of people who have studied this, even on the Old Testament level, have come to faith in Christ. One that comes to mind is a guy by the name of Rabbi Leopold Cohen, a European rabbi who was studying the scriptures, the Old Testament. And as he studied the Old Testament, he came to the conclusion that the Messiah of Israel has already come. He had to have come 
before, he said, 70 A.D., the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the Jewish temple. But now he's confused because as a Jew, he was grown up to believe that we're still waiting for the Messiah. Jesus can't be the Messiah. But he, from study, says the Messiah must have already come. Who is he? So he asked his mentor and elder rabbi, Who is the Messiah? Where can I find him? Oddly enough, this older rabbi said, Go to New York City and you'll find him. Well, he did. It was proved to be later prophetic. This guy is walking through the streets of New York City. This is his testimony. He hears music coming out of a doorway. He goes inside. It's a gospel meeting. And somebody's preaching on the fulfillment of Christ in the Old Testament prophecies. He hears it. All the pieces come to, comes together. He gives his life to Christ. He receives Jesus as his Messiah. And this man, Rabbi Leopold Cohen, started the American Mission Board to the Jews. A whole new ministry. Last week I was speaking in Albuquerque. We have four services, Saturday night service. Afterwards I'm walking through the prayer room and I get introduced to a young Jewish man who has also been studying the scriptures and comes to the conclusion that perhaps, he said, perhaps this Jesus is his Messiah. Perhaps it's speaking, the scriptures are referring to him. It was beautiful. We prayed together as he received Christ. So, according to Jesus, the Bible has authority, the Bible demonstrates accuracy, the Bible will have longevity, the Bible reveals a personality. And fifth and finally, the Bible requires responsibility. Verse 19, and we close. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Our responsibility isn't just to own and read a Bible, but to obey the Bible and to teach people, disciple others to obey it. So what does Jesus think about the Bible? This is what he thinks. This is what he knows. The Bible is God's message to you and to me. It is his word. It is authoritative. It does speak to every issue. It is God's love letter to mankind. But what do you think about the Bible? Well, it's a good book. Good literature. It's not the Word of God. Then you don't follow the Jesus who believes it is the Word of God. And it's my prayer that the Bible will become something more than just what we read on the weekends. Oh yeah, get out that book. It's Sunday but it becomes your very life as God speaks to it or to you through it. Uh, storyteller Cindy Guthrie tells a story like no one else, perhaps. This is what she writes. Once I read a newspaper report about some people who survived a tornado. When the wind picked up the house, one spontaneously cried out, Auntie M, Auntie M. She continues, he had so fully internalized the Wizard of Oz that it influenced his response when a tornado appeared in his own life. Interesting. To have watched the Wizard of Oz so many times that if you're in a twister, you'd say, Annie M. Annie M. 
Wouldn't it be great that the Bible would become so familiar to us that when the storms of life come, and they will, what comes out isn't any M, but the truth and the promises that are inerrant, infallible, and transcend every generation that are just as true today as they were back then so that we find grace to help in time of need. My final question as we close is this to you. The Bible's great. The Bible's great. But have you met the author? We're not bibliolaters here. We don't worship and bow down before the book. It's simply the means God speaks to us through. It gets us in touch with the author. Do you personally know the author? Have you personally received Christ as your Savior? as the one who runs your life, have you given him the pink slip and said, drive, I'm yours? Let's pray together. Let's all bow our heads. Heavenly Father, in this room this morning are gathered so many different kinds of people with many different kinds of needs. It's so wonderful to come before you and realize you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that your word that has impacted and influenced cultures for generations speaks to us today. We're holding and reading a book that men and women have died for in Europe during times of Reformation, have lived and died for in Roman times. Around the world, there's great persecution in countries where brothers and sisters are reading this book. And every time we get together, we hear a message from heaven as the Word of God comes alive to us. And so we would pray that every Christian in this room would be devoted to hearing your voice, obeying it, and teaching others to do it. And then we'd also want to pray, Lord, for someone who's come with us today or maybe has come for a while, maybe has even come to church for a long time. And they've come to church, but they haven't really come to Christ yet. They haven't surrendered their life personally to obey Christ to turn and repent of sin and embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. And I pray that would happen. As we're praying right now around this auditorium, if you're here this morning and you want to give your life to Christ, you want to surrender and receive Jesus, and you'll start, friend, a whole new life from this day forward. God will change you. God will give you hope, meaning, purpose, peace, and then heaven afterwards. If you're willing to receive Christ as your Savior this morning, maybe you've never done that, or maybe you did that as a child. It's been so long, but it really hasn't meant much in the last several years. I'm going to give you that opportunity right now. If you want to receive Christ, I want you to raise your hand up in the air as we're all praying. Our heads are bowed, and we're asking God for this. You raise your hand up, and you say, Pray for me, Skip. I'm going to give my life to Christ. Include me in your prayer as you close this service. Raise your hand up so I can see it. God bless you. Yes, ma'am. Right over here to my right and toward the back. Yes, sir. And right up on the side in the front. Yes, ma'am. Anybody else? Slip that hand up. Father, we want to thank you for people around this room who have indicated that need. It's wonderful for us week by week to see it, to rejoice in it, because we realize that these are more brothers and sisters 
that we can help in learning your word and following after you. And so we pray for each one who has that raised hand. Come in and heal the heart and change the life. Do your work. Do a new work. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.